From oxygen, food, and medicine to shade and interior decoration, plants provide us with many benefits. Despite how intertwined they are with our well-being, many people don't actively interact with plants daily. Often, we think of them as ornamental, relatively stationary, and slow to change beings. However, they can adapt to change quicker than you think. Open your ears and mind, and let's look closer at the dynamic nature of plants. Welcome to GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming out of the College of Biological Science at the University of Guelph and how that work can affect lives around the world. I'm your host, Amanda Reside. With me today is co-host Michael Lim and special guest Dr. Chris Caruso. We'll be chatting about Dr. Caruso's recently published study looking at how plants can change their physiology in order to respond to declines in pollinator population. To start, how would you describe your research in general and the work that's done in your lab? Yeah, so I call myself a plant evolutionary ecologist, which is a little bit of a mouthful, but it really just means that I study how plants evolve in response to their environments. So kind of building off of that, uh, why did you decide to focus on this specific topic? Was there a moment where you decided to go into this work? Yeah, so I actually started graduate school wanting to study seed dispersal by birds in the tropics. Um, and that was a career choice that was inspired by my high school ecology teacher who was an ornithologist. Um, but after about a year in my program, I basically realized that I wasn't nearly as interested in being either an ornithologist or a tropical biologist as I had originally thought. Um, but during that year, I did take a field course in, course in Costa Rica, and I did a small project where I was looking at um, basically manipulating the floral displays of a tropical plant and looking at how that affected the hummingbirds that came to pollinate them. And that was actually the start of what I do now, although of course at the time I had kind of no idea that that was where I was going to head. So yeah, so I started out on, on a pretty different path. Uh, so you recently published a study titled Plasticity in Floral Longevity and Sex Phase Duration of Lobelia Syphilitica in Response to Simulated Pollinator Declines. So to begin with, I'm curious about your research interest in flowering plant physiology that all stem from that study with hummingbirds and how have those interests changed and been affected by pollinator declines over the years? Yeah, so I actually have a, a pretty long history of studying how floral traits of plants evolve in response to pollinators. So for my PhD, for example, I studied floral evolution in hummingbird pollinated plants out in the Rocky Mountains. Um, but actually, until pretty recently, I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to work that was being done on pollinator decline. And that is in part because um, pollinator decline research has primarily focused on agricultural plants for good reasons, for food security reasons. Um, but you know, my research interests are more in wild plants. Um, and also pollinator decline research has really focused more on measuring how pollinator populations have changed Whereas I'm actually more interested in studying um, you know, things from the plant perspective and so how plants um, are responding to changes in their environment. 
So for this study in particular, you focused on two aspects of plasticity. So that would be floral longevity and sex phase duration. For the audience, can you briefly describe what plasticity itself means and these two aspects that you focused on? To understand plasticity, I think probably one of the easiest ways to do it is imagine that you take plants that carry the same genes, so maybe siblings um, or clones potentially, um, and you put them out in different environments. So if they produce different traits in different environments, despite having the same genes, that is what we would call plasticity. And you can say plasticity in all different kinds of traits. You can do it in floral traits and leaf traits in, you know, on biochemical traits. There's all kinds of possibilities there. Interestingly, a lot of floral traits are actually not very plastic. Um, and this is why we can use floral traits to identify plants, right? Because they don't change a lot based on the environment. Yeah, it's kind of obvious once you think about it, right? Um, but it turns out that floral longevity, which is just the amount of time that a flower is open to pollinator visitation, and also sex phase duration, which is just the amount of time that a flower is either shedding pollen, which are the male, the male gametes, that the, the, the equivalent really of sperm that plants produce, um, or the, the amount of time that they're able to um, receive pollen that can be used to fertilize their ovules, um, which are what we would call the female gametes, um, those traits can actually be, be plastic. Those are some floral traits that can be. Um, and so that's why we focused on floral longevity and on the length of the male and female phase, rather than traits that are less plastic, like flower size or flower color. So in the introduction of your study, you mentioned that previous work had focused on evolutionary changes in flower traits across generations, usually multiple. So why do you think it's important to study changes within a generation instead of this longer time scale? Well, human-mediated environmental change is happening quite quickly, um, mm. you know, compared to the pace of environmental change that's happened in the past. I mean, environments have always been changing, but not necessarily this quickly. And so given that, um, you know, people who study evolutionary ecology of all different kinds of organisms think that these very short-term um, responses within a generation, um, so instead of looking across generations, across longer timescales, that these sorts of responses could prevent populations from going extinct before they have a chance to evolve traits that could help adapt them to their new environment. In this case, um, you know, we're really interested in, you know, how they could, can they stick around long enough to adapt to a world with fewer pollinators? Out of curiosity, I'm sure it varies a lot between different plants, um, but what is the typical, I guess, lifespan or the time it takes from germination all the way up to being like a fully mature Lobelia syphilitica? So the, the study species that I used for the study, Lobelia syphilitica, um, is we, we generally consider it to be a short-lived perennial. So it, you know, it's going to flower a year or two after it germinates. It's going to flower pretty quickly, and it will hang on for a few years potentially and continue flowering. But in, when we're talking about floral longevity, we're talking about like within a season, right? Yes, we're talking okay. about very short-term changes, exactly, within, within a season. 
you chose to study plasticity in both early and late season flowers um, among the same species, Lobelia syphilitica, and you found different results for the two groups, which is interesting. So I was wondering, you know, what is the purpose of differentiating early and late season? And did you have any idea of how they would differ? Or is it just sort of, you know, a good practice? So honestly, the dirty little secret here is that this studying both early and late season flowers was in many ways a decision we made to manage the, the workload for this experiment. Um, the lead author on this project was actually an undergrad at the University of Guelph. She did this for her undergraduate thesis. Um, and there were only so many flowers she could follow at a time. Um, it's, um, it's, it's not hard work, but you have to visit the flowers every day until they they senesce till they die. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a commitment. Uh, and we were not necessarily, we didn't have any idea in advance about why early and late season flowers might be different. However, one thing that I would say, and this, we thought about this once we looked at the, the results, um, is that flowers that are produced later in the season, um, may have fewer resources available to them because the plant has already produced a bunch of flowers and is putting resources then into making seeds. And so that could affect the responses that we see later. But at the same time, the pollinator community could also be differing over the course of the season. We currently actually have a follow-up study going like right now, actually, in the U of G Arboretum um, that is gonna, I think, help us figure out perhaps why early and late season flowers responded differently to um, simulated pollinator decline. So that's something I'm hoping we'll know more, a little more about by, I don't know, next spring, maybe spring 2023. So that's well, we'll another- We'll have to do a follow-up episode. I know, that's <laughs> exactly. another undergraduate thesis project that's on the go right now. Cool. So in your study, uh, you focus on a plant called, obviously, the Lobelia syphilitica, but why did you choose to work with that particular species? Were they particularly affected by pollinator decline? That's a great question. It's a species I know how to work with. I know how hmm. to grow it. I know, I know how it works. I know what it will do and what will work easily and what, what sorts of projects won't work and all of that. Um, so it's convenient in that sense. But it turns out that Lobelia syphilitica is particularly interesting to study from a pollinator decline perspective because it can't produce seeds in the absence of pollinators, the way the flower is constructed. If it doesn't get visited by a pollinator, it doesn't make any seeds. And so it should be particularly vulnerable to pollinator decline. Um, and that is one reason why it turns out to be a pretty great species for studying responses to pollinator decline. Are many other flowering plants also able to, I guess, pollinate on their own without pollinators? Or would that mean like a vast majority of them are like the Lobelia where they can't do it on their own? So Lobelia isn't unique. Um, about one third of plant species are unable to produce seeds in the absence of pollinators. But then that leaves the other two thirds that actually can. And okay. we are studying those different different study system on different study, you know, maybe when some of that comes out, we can talk some more. But, you know, about about one third of flowering plants are completely dependent on pollinators to produce seed. And so that's that's a lot of species. So your study is also unique in that you experimentally reduced pollinator access to the plants, but you didn't eliminate it entirely. So why did you choose this approach 
instead of just eliminating it entirely? And why is that relevant to plants in the natural environment? Yeah, so it would actually be much, much, much easier to just completely eliminate pollinators. Uh, That's actually a really easy thing to do. Um, But it wouldn't be representative of what most plant species are experiencing as pollinators decline, which is not no pollinators, but fewer pollinator visits. Um, And, you know, that was what we, you know, we really wanted to simulate here. And, you know, when you do experiments, that's one thing you you really have to try to do is, um, you know, as close as possible, sort of simulate the environmental change that you're trying to study. So I wish we could just get rid of all of them. It would be so much easier. That makes sense. (laughs) And you blocked off access by using mesh bags around the plants. Do you think that restricted access to different sizes, let's say a really small insect could get through the mesh compared to a hummingbird, do you think this potentially differential access would make a difference? And why would that be if so? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, Lobelia syphilitica is primarily bumblebee pollinated. They don't have the most diverse pollinator assemblage out there, but there are a lot of native plant species that have much more diverse pollinator assemblages where, you know, for example, they're visited by, you know, kind of both bumblebees, but also smaller native bees and maybe both specialists and generalists. And those are the kinds of study systems where it would be really interesting. And people have done this, not quite in the same context as us, but, you know, in a related context, they have you know, actually use different mesh sizes to eliminate, maybe, you know, let in both the large and the small bees, but then maybe restrict the large bees, but still let the small bees in. Um, And, you know, in the right study system, that would be really interesting to study because not all pollinators are declining in the same way. Some groups of pollinators are declining more than others. So the overall assemblage in some cases is changing in addition to just there being fewer pollinators. And, you know, different um, sizes of pollinators can differ in their effectiveness. Some pollinators may visit and just not be very effective. They just don't transfer much pollen um, and others can be far more effective. So that's something I've been thinking about, but I would I would need a different study species to, hmm. to, to tackle that. Um, I think it would be interesting. Yeah, it would be interesting to attempt to restrict access to small pollinators while allowing the large ones in. I don't know how you would do that, but it, it that be would be the trickiest one. You know, I have some colleagues who've done work where they where they actually sit there and they'll shoo away basically certain <laughs> pollinators. I saw a talk at a meeting just about a month ago in Cleveland where someone did that. Now, there are some limits to how long you can do that for and with how many plants. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. I imagine trying to explain that to someone who came by to see your your experiment, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, um, I'm not the person to do that work. But I, I have colleagues who, um, who know a lot more about the bees than I do, who, who have done those kinds of studies. In the end, Your study concluded that floral traits like longevity and sex phase duration can respond plastically to pollinator declines, but other traits like display size were unaffected. And you kind of hinted at this earlier that some traits were more likely to change than others. So why do you think, in general, the reason for this is, and under what conditions you might see some of those other traits like display size changing? Yeah, so, you know, floral display size is um, an interesting trait because it's 
it's just the number of open flowers on a plant on any given day. And it's determined by how long flowers stay open, so floral longevity, but also by the rate at which flowers open in the first place. So when the bud actually opens up and you have a flower that can be, that's open and can be visited, doing what we did, simulating pollinator decline, if it increases floral longevity, and we did find evidence for that, um, but it decreases the rate at which the flowers open, then those two things are going to balance each other out and display size is not going to be affected even though floral longevity like the flowers are staying open mm. longer and so that's our best guess now and so the next step is really to look at the effect of pollinator decline on the rate at which flowers are opening based on the conclusions of your study how has your perspective on the dangers of pollinator decline changed, if at all? And is this plasticity and methods of adaptation, are these an indication that plants may actually have a fighting chance against the threat of pollinator decline? Yeah, so, you know, I do think that this study is a hopeful one for, you know, the basically the, the fate of plants as pollinators decline. Um, and, you know, plants maybe rooted to the ground, but they aren't passive, which I think is something that, you know, I guess maybe a, a lot of us don't think about. Um, they can respond to their environment, including, you know, responding to pollinator decline, and they can do it quite quickly, right? I mean, these responses, you know, were happening pretty much immediately after we, we, we simulated um, pollinator decline. So, you know, I think, I think people should see it as a, as, it's a very hopeful thing that, you know, plants can respond to changes in their environment. Um, you know, they have evolved over millions of years, the capacity mm. to do that, but we tend to underestimate it because they're rooted to the ground, right? They don't, they don't move around. Um, they don't have what maybe we think of as behavior, but, you know, I would argue that, you know, keeping your flowers open longer, you could think of that as behavior, right? I mean, it's a response to your mm. environment. All depends on how you look at it. It does, exactly. If you've ever seen a time lapse of like a sunflower turning yep. to face the sun, yep. you know that plants have, you know, mobility. Uh, yep. Maybe not as quickly or as obviously as we might think of it, but definitely they're, they're changing. No, that's 100% that's true. So in general... I think when people hear about pollinator declines, their brain immediately leaps to it being a, oh no, save the bees type of issue. And you kind of hinted that before that most people focus on the pollinator side and you're more about the plants. So is there anything you wish that people knew more about the plant perspective? Yeah, so I, you know, I think there are two things that I wish people would, would think about more when they think about pollinator decline. Um, and one is something I, I just mentioned, which is that, again, plants are not a passive partner in this plant pollinator, you know, interaction. Um, they can respond to pollinator decline on both short and long-term scales. And these are things we can study, right? We can study them. We have the tools to do that. We can make predictions um, about, uh, you know, how, how plants may respond um, and maybe which plants are going to, um, you know, which plants are going to um, 
be quite vulnerable to pollinator decline and, and which are going to be able to actually adapt quite well. Um, and second, I think it's, I would like people to um, realize that it's important to understand how um, native or wild plant populations respond to pollinator decline. Um, you know, although most of the research on pollinator decline has focused on agricultural species, um, most pollinators that visit agricultural species also visit wild plants for at least part of their life cycle. Um, agricultural food systems can't be decoupled from the native plant populations that surround them. So, you know, in addition to studying agricultural systems, which I would never say isn't important, I think it's very important, um, it's really important to understand how, how um, you know, the natural systems and, you know, wild plant populations will respond to pollinator decline because that would, that does have the potential to feedback and affect on um, agricultural systems um, and our, you know, our food security that's, that's related to pollination services. Right. I think it always links back to things are more interconnected than you think. So a random plant that you've never heard of before could be really important to understanding and how it could affect, you know, not just that plant, but also the human ecosystem as well as, you know, the food chain and supply. A little bit more of a personal question. What was your favorite part of working on this research project? Or what was the undergraduate student who worked on this stuff? What, what do you think her favorite part would have been? Yeah, I had to think pretty hard about my answer to this question. Um, I actually, I mean, personally, my favorite part was actually, you know, mentoring Keanu, you know, while she did this project, you know, for her undergraduate thesis, um, you know, especially because this was a project that we did um, summer 2020. So it was at the very start of the pandemic. And um, you know, it feels like ancient history now, but I think we can all look back and remember how uncertain that all was. And, um, you know, so helping Kiana do this kind of despite everything else going on, um, you know, was really rewarding. Like, I mean, mentoring everyone was rewarding, but, you know, folks that managed to do kind of really interesting research like this in the middle of a global pandemic, it just... It's really impressive. And, you know, it was such a great experience to be able to help someone do that despite everything. I mean, because we really had to improvise. Um, you know, we couldn't use the the area um, where we normally would pot plants in the greenhouse because, again, you know, there were all these restrictions on access to campus. So we actually brought all the plants to my driveway and I repotted them there and then we moved them out to the Arboretum for the experiment. So. It was a very memorable, this whole project was very memorable because we really did have to um, just improvise. So, yeah. So I a think hopeful. I'll, I, yes, it yeah. is. Hopeful <laughs> in more than one way. <laughs> hopeful in many ways, yes. <laughs> we can do interesting science even in the face of a global pandemic. So there mm -hmm. you go. So we kind of been all over this question and answer throughout this uh, chat we've had so far, but what are the next steps for this work? or I guess going even beyond the things that you're currently working on and hoping to publish? Yeah, so I mean, the next immediate step is to test whether flowers that stay open longer, that have this greater floral um, longevity, whether they actually do produce more seeds. That is mm -hmm. what we would um, predict, um, because the longer you stay open, the 
greater the chance you have to be visited by a pollinator, even if you're no kind of more attractive than any other flower, you know, it just you have more probability of, of being visited if you're sitting there with your flower still open. And so that's something that we are actually testing this summer um, it, to see whether, whether that's the case. So in the very short run, that's really what I want to know is we, we, know they, we know they can keep their flowers open longer in response to simulated pollinator decline, but do they actually produce more seeds? You know, either way would be interesting, but you know, that, that's the next thing we want to know. And I would say longer term, what I think is going to be really interesting is to basically try to um, bring together this work where we're looking at very short-term responses to pollinator decline and look and see how that then relates to um, longer-term changes across generations. So really what we would call, you know, evolution, like change across mm -hmm. generations. And, you know, looking to see how these sort of short-term changes you know, do they have any effect then on the longer term evolution of floral longevity, but also of other floral traits? All right, so we'll move on to our social media questions. Uh, Michael, would you like to ask the first one? Sure. So for our first question, as an individual household, is there anything I can do to help fight against the effects of pollinator decline? Yeah, so I mean, our research doesn't speak directly to this, but I would say that planting pollinator-friendly plant species is always a good idea. Um, you know, for every region, there's always information out there that you can get on, you know, for your region, what are the pollinator-friendly kind of native plant species. Are there any plants in particular that, you know, come to the top of your head when you think about plants that are particularly affected that maybe would be good choices for planting? Uh, you know, I brought this up and I should have expected this follow-up. Um, <laughs> that's a great question, actually. I mean, I think one obvious species that is actually pretty straightforward to grow um, are milkweeds. I mean, not only common milkweed, but also butterfly weed, which as it sounds is visited by butterflies, but also other species. You know, I would say certainly in Southern Ontario, those are a couple of, you know, obvious ones that, you know, a, a lot of things will visit those flowers and find those resources. But also, you know, if you have a, a sort of weedy area that has some native plants flowering in it, let them flower, right? You don't have to make it look all manicured and beautiful. And that, I mean, that would certainly help too, in addition to kind of doing, you know, kind of dedicated pollinator garden planting. Have you noticed many changes in the issue of pollinator decline over the years? And at this point, maybe with your hopeful study, are you noticing any improvements or solutions that might get us back to quote-unquote regular levels? So in terms of how the issue of pollinator decline has changed over the years, I do think that there's the realization that pollinator decline is complex. Like I think initially there was a lot of it's the pollinator apocalypse, everything is disappearing, you know, world's coming to an end. 
Um, but it's, you know, it's actually a lot more complex than that. And that's something we've touched on, right? Some species are declining in some regions, others are not. You know, for example, there's some evidence that in higher elevations, pollinator populations may actually be going up. And that may be related to those areas actually being warmer. That may be a side effect of global warming is that high elevation areas that, you know, previously were difficult for some pollinator species, um, you know, for it to just even be warm enough for them to fly and, and collect pollen are now more amenable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot more nuance than we originally thought. And, you know, I do think that's a big change and a good one, right? Because I don't really see how running around saying there's a pollinator apocalypse is particularly helpful to anyone. Certainly it's mm -hmm. not going to maybe help us solve anything. And so in terms, though, of, I guess, the second part of the question, do we think things are improving or they will recover to regular levels? I mean, I do think that, you know, plants will adapt over time. Um, and in that sense, things will become, I don't want to say more regular, but I guess for lack of better words, more regular, um, that they will adapt to a world with fewer pollinators. Um, and in terms of the pollinator populations, you know, we should have more tools in terms of, you know, taking steps that are going to have um, a real material effect in terms of stabilizing pollinator populations. And whether that's, you know, having to do with regulating some of the chemicals, the pesticides that can hit pollinator populations, or whether it has to do with, you know, changing some of our practices in terms of, you know, when we work, you know, when you consider an agricultural system, you know, we, we can get the evidence to figure out whether some of these concrete steps might make a difference in the pollinator populations. So just to finish up here, I'd like to open the floor to any final comments that you might have about your work. And if our listeners only take one thing away from our chat today, what do you hope that it would be? Got it. So I think this won't surprise you given some of my comments today, but again, I hope people remember that plants may be rooted to the ground, but they aren't passive. They have the potential to respond to pollinator decline and other changes in their environment. And so I think in that sense, it's important not to succumb to sort of fatalism that everything is awful and, you know, the whole system is going to collapse and all of that. That, that doesn't mean to say that, you know, bad things can't happen, but Plants do have the ability to respond to these changes in their environment. They've evolved that ability over millions and millions of years. And so that's a real, you know, a real reason for hope. I love that. I love, I love the message of hope uh, when talking about environmental issues. I think it's important to keep that in mind. You know, we have the tools to study these things. We do. And to understand, mm -hmm. um, you know, and again, that doesn't mean that plants can do everything, there will be limits on their abilities to respond. But again, we can understand what those limits might be, right? We have the ability to do that. And I think that should make us feel good. I mean, we have, we have the ability to do that as scientists. And so with that, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. A big thanks again to our guest, Dr. Chris Caruso, for joining us today. GriffinCast is brought to you by your hosts, Amanda Rezai and me, Michael Lim with editing assistance from Ian Smith. If you're hungry to learn about different science topics, please check out Scribe Research Highlights. That's S-C-R-I-B-E Research Highlights on the University of Guelph website at yieldguelph.ca. Or 
You can follow us on social media at U of G CBS. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Music in the podcast comes from Upbeat. There'll be details in the show notes as always. Until next time, please stay curious.